Many people think they know the stories behind famous sports moments. They can recall the big win, the score in the final seconds, and the players' big personalities. But behind every seemingly amazing team, player, and win, there's an even better story. Rewind the Play seeks to tell the full story of some of the craziest and most iconic moments in modern sports. It's February 22nd. 1980. The United States Hockey Olympic team is minutes away from facing the Soviet Union hockey team. Sportscaster Al Michael sits in the balcony with broadcast partner Ken Dryden. Dryden is a legendary Hall of Fame goalie who played for the Montreal Canadiens. Michaels and Dryden have been commentating ABC's coverage of hockey at the Olympics and are trying to remain optimistic that this game will go better for the Americans. After all, if this game looks like a repeat of the last matchup, everyone across the country will be reaching for their remotes to watch Dukes of Hazard or Dallas. Even though the game is starting at 5 p.m., it won't air until 8 p.m., so it can be in the primetime slot. Michaels and Dryden adjust their headsets and wait for the signal. The ABC executive mouths five, four, three, two, one. Michaels and Dryden welcome their intimate audience of 34.2 million viewers to the 1980 Olympic Winter Games in Lake Placid, New York. Fast forward to the third period, and the Soviets lead 3-2. to two. Even though the Soviets have dominated plays, Michael and Dryden have remained optimistic. But now it's coming down to the wire for the Americans to win the game. Finally, American Mark Johnson successfully ties the game 3-3 after hitting a shot past Soviet goaltender Vladimir Myshkin. The energy in the stadium only increases. With exactly 10 minutes left, U.S. team captain Mike Yerzoni fires a shot into the goal, giving Team USA the lead for the first time in the game. It's 4-3, and the Americans are trying to keep it that way. Over the next 10 minutes, the Soviets and Americans battle it out on the ice, each increasing their offensive strategy more and more aggressively as the time ticks off the clock. With each minute ticking down, American goalie Jim Craig manages to block every frenzied shot from the Soviets. With seconds left in the game, American Mike Johnson gains possession of the puck and passes it to Ken Morrow, and the U.S. tries to clear the zone. In one of his most legendary calls of his career, Michael shouts out, 11 seconds. You've got 10 seconds. The countdown going on right now. Morrow, up to Silk, five seconds left in the game. Do you believe in miracles? Yes! The arena erupts into cheers as the U.S. team piles out from their benches on the ice, triumphantly pumping their fists in the air. In the midst of the chaos, Team USA head coach Herb Brooks sprints to the U.S. locker room and cries. Fans in the stands hug, scream, and furiously wave American flags. The fateful 1980 Winter Olympics between the Soviets and Americans would soon be nicknamed the Miracle on Ice, 
and go down as one of the most impactful moments in all of sports. Hi, I'm your host, Morgan Lane. Welcome to Rewind the Play, a podcast that takes a closer look at the biggest upsets, plays, and players, and changes everything you thought you knew about some of the most iconic moments in sports. In February 1980, the United States hosted the Winter Olympics in Lake Placid, New York. Lake Placid is a small village nestled in the New York State Adirondack Mountains. The small lakeside village is a renowned location for winter sports, especially skiing. Lake Placid had hosted the Winter Olympics just 48 years before. The Games were held amidst a period of great social and political turmoil in the United States, as the Great Depression raged on, affecting millions of Americans. In 1980, similar social and political turmoil shadowed the Games, as the Cold War and its impact loomed over the events. Just months before, in November 1999, 62 Americans were taken as hostages in the United States Embassy in Tehran. Not even a month later, the Soviet Union began to invade the Middle East, starting with Afghanistan. As a result of this, President Jimmy Carter petitioned the Olympic Committee to cancel the 1980 Summer Olympics, which were to be held in Moscow. However, the Olympic Committee ignored this and affirmed that the Games would be held in Moscow as planned. It was no secret that the Soviets had dominated the Winter Olympic Games and the world when it came to hockey. The Russian team had won gold for the past four Olympics, starting in 1964 in Innsbruck, Austria, in 1968 in Grenoble, France, in 1972 in Sapporo, Japan, and their latest win in 1976 in Innsbruck, Austria. In the 1976 Games, the Soviets were led by head coach Boris Glocken and team captain Boss Makala. In these games, The USSR and Czechoslovakia teams were locked in a tense rivalry. In the end, the Soviets narrowly won against Czechoslovakia in the last minutes of the game, after the Soviets had been down. The Soviets had done the impossible. They had secured the gold medal for the fourth time in a row and had medaled at every single Winter Olympics they had ever gone to. The Soviets knew they were the best and definitely better than the Americans in the NHL. After all, they had just proved it the year before. The previous February, the Soviets had dominated the NHL players in the Challenge Cup 79. The Challenge Cup featured a series of three games and was held in Madison Square Garden in New York City. The Soviet Union national team was coached by Viktor Tikhonov, and made up of Russian hockey stars who were defending Olympic champions. The NHL All-Stars, led by head coach Scotty Bowman, were made up of a mix of hockey All-Stars from hockey teams all over North America. In the first game, the NHL All-Stars won 4-2 over the Soviets. However, 
This momentary success did not last long for the All-Stars, as the Soviets beat them 5-4 in the second game and completely shut them out in the third game, winning 6-0. The Soviets had dominated the NHL All-Star team. There was no denying the fact that the USSR was a force to be reckoned with on the ice. Riding high off of their recent victory in the Challenge Cup and their favorable Olympic history, the Soviet ice hockey team was ready to once again dominate. With the Olympics quickly approaching, the United States needed a new strategy, and fast, if they wanted to have any hope at beating the Soviets on the ice. What the U.S. needed was a new set of eyes, a charismatic leader who could motivate players to be their best and bring the team to victory. What the U.S. needed was someone like Herb Brooks. Respected collegiate head coach Herb Brooks was selected to coach the 1980 U.S. hockey team. Brooks was no stranger to hockey, having played at the University of Minnesota from 1955 to 1959 and playing for the U.S. national team eight times. He had represented the United States twice in the Olympics, once in the 1964 Olympics and again in the 1968 Olympics. After retiring, Brooks became a coach at his alma mater, the University of Minnesota, leading the Gophers to three NCAA championship titles in 1974, 1976, and 1979. Brooks hit all the boxes you could want in the coach. But what about the rest of the team? What about the players? Brooks quickly began the painstaking task of assembling his Olympic team. After holding tryouts in Colorado Springs and administering a 300-question psychological test to each player, the roster of 20 players that would represent the United States was finalized. Shockingly, only one player, Buzz Schneider had ever been to the Olympics before. The rest of the team were made up of college students, nine being from Brooks' own team from the University of Minnesota. The unprecedented makeup of the team only became more unprecedented as the remaining members of the team were four players from Boston University. Boston University and the University of Minnesota had long been locked in an intense rivalry facing off in the NCAA semifinal just a few years prior. Team USA was the youngest team in U.S. history to play in the Olympics, with the average age being 21 years old. Critics were left scratching their heads. How was a group of barely 21-year-old college students supposed to defeat the powerhouse that was the Soviet Union? While the public might have had low trust in the prospective team, Brooks did not. Brooks was determined to take the unlikely group and utilize their skills until they were a force of nature. And he did. Brooks worked to combine the European and North American style of hockey, transforming their play into a creative and physical teamwork-driven style of play. Over the following practices, Team USA learned how to play as a unit and were strengthened both mentally and physically. The unlikely Team USA had to come together under the coaching of Herb Brooks. The team played well together and was prepared to represent their country in the Olympics. But no one could have imagined just how miraculous the events of the 1980 Olympics would be. 
Minutes after the Americans won against the Soviets, American goalie Jim Craig holds his hockey stick in his left hand and American flag in his right. He's just played one of the most statistically insane games of his career, blocking 36 out of the 39 shots from the dominant Soviet Union. He scans the crowd, searching for his father, Donald, in the stands. And then he spots him. His father sits with his brothers in the cheering stands, beaming at Jim. Jim's parents, Margaret and Donald, supported his hockey career every step of the way. Even when he was a little boy, his mother fully supported his love of hockey. Margaret knew, Margaret knew Jim dreamed of playing on Team USA and representing his country in the Olympics. Just a year earlier, Margaret tragically lost her fight with cancer. Now, the father and son find each other at the bottom of the stands and embrace in a tight hug. Even though Craig's mother isn't here, they both know what this victory means for their family and what it meant to Margaret. Many often believe that this miraculous victory over the Soviet Union secured the gold medal for the Americans. However, this is not true. In the 80s, the Olympics used a different elimination format than the one we know today. Instead of teams being eliminated one by one, the group game was counted along with the medal round games. This meant that the United States would finish anywhere from gold to bronze. The United States hockey team defeated the Soviets in the first medal round game. They had to go out onto the ice another time, this time to face Sweden for the gold medal. Four days later, the United States team laces up their skates, grabs their sticks, and sets foot on the ice ready to secure the gold medal. The team is still riding high off of their impossible win after upsetting the highly favored and four-time defending gold medalist Soviet Union. But today it's a new team, a new game, and it's time to play. And they're losing. By the end of the second period, Finland leads two to one. After a few choice words in the locker room, Team USA returns to the ice in the third period with a newfound fervor. Jim Craig stopped 21 of 23 shots. Phil Verchata tied the game at 2.25 in the third after receiving a pass from Dave Christian. Just a few minutes later, Rob McClellan scored, giving the U.S. the lead. With less than four minutes in the game, Mark Johnson caught his rebound from his block shot and successfully scored the final goal for the U.S. against Sweden. Team USA had beat Finland 4-2 and done the impossible. Despite the years and decades that have passed since Team USA met on the ice against the Soviets, the country remains intrigued with the miraculous events that occurred during the game. The game has since become American hockey lore. The 1980 Team USA hockey team inspired a new generation of hockey players, but also renewed a belief that so many Americans had lost, confidence in their country. In many ways, America and its politics had taken a beating, especially at the hands of the Soviet Union. The Miracle on Ice was just a hockey game, but it was a hockey game that helped Americans remember what it meant to be American. Team USA was made up of amateur college students who had never played before together on a team. They were the underdogs. No one had projected them to win. Yet, at the end of those Olympics, those same college students walked out of this closing ceremony as gold medalists and Olympic champions. 
It perfectly encapsulated the American spirit, courage, and determination in the face of the impossible. Seven years later, President Ronald Reagan stands 100 yards away from the Berlin Wall at the Brandenburg Gate. The Berlin Wall has long been a matter of great controversy as it starkly divides Germany down two sides. The division in the country is not just geographical. The wall serves as a physical reminder of the difference between communism and oppression and democracy and freedom. In his speech, Reagan utters his famous message, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Reagan's administration disapproved of his message, fearing it would damage the United States' relationship with the new Soviet leader. Reagan's direct command is a polar opposite approach than that of previous presidencies tendency to tiptoe around the Soviet Union in their attempts to end the long Cold War. But just two years later, the seemingly never-ending Cold War thaws. On November 9, 1989, it was announced that citizens of East Germany could cross over into West Germany. That night, thousands fled to the wall to celebrate and use hammers and chisels to chip away at the wall. East and West Germans celebrate the fall of the wall and thousands of miles away, Americans celebrate the symbolic end of the Cold War. The Miracle on Ice game impacted many, both in the 80s and now. The famous team and their journey to Olympic victory was turned into a movie in 2004. The movie, called Miracle, starred Kurt Russell as Herb Brooks. The movie was a hit with the public grossing $64.5 million at the box office, and Russell's performance being praised as one of the best of his career. In one of the most famous scenes from the movie, Brooks paces in the middle of the Team USA locker room as the players sit in their lockers. The players look defeated, even before they have stepped on the ice. The players sit, gaze fixed at the floor, hands clasped. Brooks looks at his silent team and begins to speak. Great moments are born from great opportunity. And that's what you have here tonight, boys. That's what you've earned here tonight. One game. If we played them ten times, they might win nine. But not this game. Not tonight. Tonight, we skate with them. Tonight, we stay with them. And we shut them down because we can. Tonight, we are the greatest hockey team in the world. You were born to be hockey players, every one of you, and you were meant to be here tonight. This is your time. Their time is done. It's over. I'm sick and tired of hearing about what a great hockey team the Soviets have. Screw them. This is your time. Now go out there and take it. Many of the Team USA hockey stars reunited in 2004 at the movie's premiere in Los Angeles, California. However, the team was missing one of their biggest leaders. Months before the movie was set to come out, Herb Brooks died in a car accident. At the end of Miracle, the screen goes black, and words flash up on the screen, saying, This film is dedicated to the memory of Herb Brooks, who died shortly following principal photography. He never saw it. He lived it. Thank you for joining us on Rewind the Play. If you like this episode, please consider leaving a like or sharing this podcast with your friends. Until next time.